The Bible is the greatest story ever told, but it can be a little challenging to understand. No worries though, today we continue our sermon series, One Story, the story that reveals His glory. This series has been educational as it spotlights the biblical narrative in a way that shows how the Bible fits together to tell one story. We are going to discover how the story of scripture reveals the glory of Christ. To learn more about freedom, join us on our website at freedombiblechurch.net. We wish you the best day ahead. Man, I'm so excited that you're here this morning. I wanted to celebrate just for a moment before we dive into today's message. As many of you know, last uh, Wednesday night we had our our um, dessert auction where we raised money for our student ministry for the year for camps and retreats and discipleship. And uh, and as always, you guys showed up with incredible generosity. And uh, last Wednesday night we brought in one of our largest. Uh, donations ever for student ministry. I think we raised a total of, uh, I think we got on the screen, $3,971.43. Yeah. Give yourselves a hand because it, it is your generosity that provided that amount of money for our students. And so continue not just to provide, not just to, to give money, but provide your prayer and even your time to serve uh, the next generation. So just encourage you, if you're, if you're not involved in the next generation, whether it be our children's ministry, our student ministry, get plugged in. God is doing some really cool things in the lives of our students, as many of you experienced through their testimonies that we heard on Wednesday night. Uh, now, for those of you new with us, we're in a series called One Story. And what we're doing in this series, we're walking through the one story of the Bible. Many of you may not know this, but the Bible tells one story. And that one story starts in Genesis, and that one story ends in Revelation. And that story is told throughout the entire Bible. And right now, what we're doing is we're looking at the storyline, the plot line, if you will, of the Bible. And we said that it starts with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But by the time we get to Genesis 3, we see the next major plot line of the story, and that is the fall. Last week, we looked at the fact that the that, that as, as, uh, as human beings, we sinned against God, we rebelled against God, centered, sin entered into our world. The next phase, next plot line in the story is covenant promises, which we're going to cover the next two weeks, this week and next. Those all encompass the entire Old Testament. Creation, fall, covenant promises. Then we get to the New Testament, we get to redemption, to mission, and new creation. And so that, church, is the plot line, the storyline of the Bible. And the Bible is telling this one story. Because if you remember, at the very beginning, God created humanity and, and he created it perfect. He said that he created men without sin. 
We were created in the beginning as God's image bearers. And God had intimate relationship with mankind. We as humans had had relationships that were right with one another. And we were in God's perfect place, fulfilling the purpose that he'd given us. But as we discovered last week, sin entered and everything changed. Sin wrecked all of that. In fact, now, because of our sin, we have a broken relationship with God. We no longer have fellowship with God because of sin. And I don't have to tell you this, but our relationships with one another are filled with conflict. Shocking, right? No, this is all the results of sin. And once we see the fall, what begins to happen is we begin to see the evidence of the fall throughout Scripture. In Genesis 4, we have the first murder. In Genesis 6, things get so bad that God sends a flood to destroy the entire earth, and he chooses one man, one man named Noah, in order to save humanity. Noah, by the time we get from Genesis 6 to Genesis 12, what happens is the the earth is repopulated. And we have a long period of time between Genesis 6 and Genesis uh, 10. And and that period of time, nations grow out of Noah's descendants. So this is a long, long time. But then again, in Genesis 11, what happens? Those nations come together and they say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make it all about us. Kind of what we do, isn't it? Let's make it all about us. And so they they come together and they they say, we're going to build a tower. And they build this tower in the city of Babel so that they can make a name for themselves. What does God do? God confuses their languages and scatters them throughout the world. That's where we get every single language that we have around the world. Because in Genesis chapter 11, we came together. And as a result, humanity, in trying to make a name for ourselves, God scatters us and gives us new languages. You see, that's what happens. Every time we try to seek independence from God, the result is more pain, more problems, more troubles, and more brokenness. It was true in the days of the scriptures, and it's true in our own lives as well. The more we try to seek to be independent from God, the more it wreaks havoc on our own lives. So let me ask you this. If you were given the task of solving all the world's problems, all the problems that were caused by our sin, crime, poverty, uh, education, you name it, if you were tasked with solving all the world's problems, where would you start? And better yet, who would you ask to help you? See, in the scriptures, what we discover is that God's plan to redeem, God's plan to right the wrong that sin had caused, starts in unlikely places. And throughout the scripture, God's plan of solving our sin problem is centered around what we call covenant promises. Promises that God makes with his people. Some of those promises are unconditional. Meaning that no matter what we do, God's going to do his part. But there are other promises that God makes 
that are conditional. In other words, God's going to always fulfill his part of the bargain, but sometimes we don't. And those are conditional promises. So, so throughout Scripture, you'll see these covenant promises that God makes. Some are unconditional, some are conditional. And yet those covenant promises form the framework for the entire Bible. If we want to understand what the Scripture is teaching us, we have to understand these covenant promises. In fact, the Old Testament and the New Testament can be called the Old Covenants and then the New Covenant. Because these covenants, these promises that God makes, form the background and the framework for the biblical story. See, oftentimes we look at the Old Testament and we think the Old Testament is just a history of Israel. But the reality is the Old Testament is actually more a history of God's covenants with his people. Where God reveals who he is. Where God reveals his plan for redemption and his purposes for mankind. That's really what we see uh, throughout the Old Testament is this, this story, this history of God's covenants with his people. But here's the problem. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people continue to break their end of the covenant. They, we continue, we as, as sinners continue to repeatedly break the terms of the covenant. But here's one thing that is certain. One thing that you and I can, can bet the house on, if you will. And that is that God will never ever break his end of the covenant. He will never break his promises. God, even though we remain unfaithful, God will always remain faithful. And we can have hope, and we can have assurance in the fact that God is always faithful. So where God starts is in these covenant promises. But who does God choose? And just like where he starts, where, who he chooses, is also incredibly unlikely. God chooses unlikely people to accomplish his plans and purposes. And in Genesis 12, one individual catches God's attention. He's not a king. He's not a general. He's not a celebrity. It is one shriveled up old man named Abram. Listen to what God says in Genesis chapter 12 beginning in verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, and by the way, Abram was a pagan. He didn't know God. In fact, he probably worshipped multiple gods, but God calls out to Abram in Genesis 12. He says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So right here in Genesis 12, God establishes this covenant with Abraham. And God says, there are three parts of this covenant, and this covenant is unconditional. No matter what Abraham and his descendants do, God is going to fulfill this covenant. And the covenant is this, I'm going to, give, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land, the promised land, and through your descendants, you will be a blessing 
to every family in all the earth. That's the promise that God makes to Abraham. And what's amazing about this covenant is right here in Genesis 12, we see God restoring all that was lost in the fall. When mankind falled in Genesis 3, we see God restoring that right here in Genesis 12. Think about it. In the beginning, you have God's people, Adam and Eve. In God's place, the Garden of Eden. Under God's rule, in perfect fellowship with God. Fulfilling their God-given purpose as image bearers. And then here, what does God promise in this covenant with Abraham? He says there's going to be God's people. Abraham and his descendants, who we'll find out in just a few minutes, is the nation of Israel. In God's place, the promised land. Under God's rule, being obedient to the word of God. Fulfilling their God-given purpose of being a blessing to all nations. See, the strange choice of Abraham tells us that, that God's way of solving our problem with sin is vastly different than what we would choose. God's, God's solution, when God works out our troubles, when God intervenes in our lives, just as we were praying for just a few moments ago, that God would show up, that God would move, that we're waiting here for Him. When God shows up, when God moves, it's vastly different than what we'd often plan. God uses unlikely, unlikely people in unlikely places, under un, unlikely circumstances, to, to accomplish his purposes and his plans. You see, God's grand rescue mission here doesn't start with an army. It doesn't start with a celebrity. It doesn't start with a gifted politician. It starts with a geriatric tag team. <laughs> Abraham and Sarah, who were old and beyond the years of giving birth. Now, that's kind of difficult, isn't it? God promised to make you a great nation and you have no kids kind of a challenge but here's what here's why god chose them because they believed that god would keep his promises they were faithful enough to believe they had enough faith to believe that god would be faithful that god would keep his promises now i know some of you probably remember the song as a kid father abraham had many sons yeah the problem is it's not true see abraham only had two he only had two sons. So you were, your entire childhood is ruined right now. Thank you. You're welcome. They only had two sons. He had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, Ishmael was, was Abraham and Sarah's way of helping God out. You ever try to help God out with his solutions, with his plans? Never works out great. Never works out great. And that is Ishmael. See, what happened was Abraham and Sarah were old. They couldn't have children. So what Sarah does is she gives Hagar to Abraham to be his wife in order to bear a child for them. And the result is Ishmael. But God says, that wasn't my plan. I said, from you, Abraham and Sarah will conceive and you will have a child. And that child is Isaac. So the covenant promise runs through Isaac. Now Isaac also had two sons. Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau was a man's man. Esau probably drove a pickup truck. More than likely, he listened to country music. And not the new stuff we have now, but the old stuff, the good stuff. That's the country music he listened to. That's Esau. Now, Jacob, 
was a mama's boy. Jacob liked to cook, probably drove a Prius. <laughs> Listened to like Taylor Swift and Brad Paisley and junk like that. But Jacob was also a deceiver and a schemer. When you read Jacob's story, you realize that Jacob lied his way into God's family. He deceived his brother to receive his birthright. And then he tricks his father Isaac to give him his brother's inheritance. So Jacob deceives his way, lies his way into, the, into God's family tree. And as a result, God is known, the God of the Bible is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. And he does it all through deception. Now, I don't know about you, but I often think of God's people, God's chosen people, the people of the Old Testament, like these people that God uses and chooses. It's like Billy Graham's and Birkenstocks. That's just not true. These folks were a hot mess express. They were constantly messing things up. But I don't know about you, but that should give us hope. Listen, if God can use Abraham and his dysfunctional family, then guess what? God can use me. And God can use you. And he can use your family to accomplish his purposes as well. But here's the good news about Jacob. Jacob actually encounters God later in life. After this, after this scenario, after all the deception, all the scheming he's done, he actually has an encounter with God. In fact, the Bible describes it as Jacob wrestles with God. And instead of God suplexing him off the top rope, what God does is something radically different. God changes his name. Listen to what happens in Genesis 32, verse 28. In Genesis 32, 28, it says this. Let's see if I can find it. Genesis, here, here's what it says. Then God said to Jacob, after this wrestling match, then your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven or wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. So what God does is he changes Jacob's name to Israel, Israel as one who wrestles. Now, I don't know about you, but there's times in my life where I wrestle with God. Anybody else? Here's what I want you to know. That's okay. God is big enough. To handle our wrestling with him. Our struggling. Our striving. That's why the psalmist could say, I cry out. And when my heart is broken, when my, when my soul is downcast, I can cry out to God. That's why we can sing songs. I'm waiting for you. I'm longing for you. I want your presence. And so we see Jacob Get his, gets a name change. But here's the remarkable thing. In Scripture, whenever God changes a name, he also changes the person. And Jacob is a different person as a result of his encounter with God. And you see that throughout Scripture. You see Abram changed to Abraham. 
you see in the in the New Testament, you see Simon named he changed his name to Peter. You see Saul now being called Paul is a is a reflection of his mission to the Gentiles. So throughout Scripture, when God changes someone's name, he changes that person. And that's what we see happen with Jacob. He is now a changed person. And from this day forward, God's people will be known as Israel. This nation that God has chosen will be the nation of Israel. And through Israel, the entire earth, every family on earth will be blessed. How? Because they will be the bringers of God's rescue. It is through this nation that God will one day rise up a Messiah that is sent to save each and every one of us. Which this teaches us an incredibly important lesson when it comes to God's election. When it comes to God's choosing. What we see in this text and what, in, what we see in this story is that oftentimes God's choosing is not one over another, but it is one for the sake of another. What I mean by that is by God choosing Israel, all nations, all races, all tribes, all languages, all tongues now have access to salvation through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who came from the nation of Israel. So God chose Israel. God spoke to Israel. And God demanded something of Israel. And that was that they would be his holy people. That they would be set apart. That they would be holy and they'd be righteous. But by the time we get to Exodus, which is about 400 years after Abraham, the nation of Israel is anything but a blessing to the nations. In fact, they are enslaved in the land of Egypt. But here's the remarkable thing. God doesn't forget his promises. God remembers his promise to Abraham. That promise that I will make you a great nation. I will give you a great land. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God remembers that promise and calls a man named Moses out of a burning bush. He says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to deliver my people. I want you to set them free. So if you've seen, um, if you if you've seen what is that movie called, the the favorite, the Prince of Egypt, you know the story, right? If you've watched the Prince of Egypt, you know the story. Moses goes to Egypt, tells Pharaoh, "Let my people go." Pharaoh says, "No." This goes on and on and on until the point where God sends ten plagues, ten plagues in order to judge Egypt and Pharaoh for refusing to let his people go. And the tenth plague, that final plague, God tells Israel, in order to be saved, in order for you and your family to be redeemed, what you must do is sacrifice an unblemished lamb. And you are to take the blood of that lamb and you are to paint it on your door frames as a symbol for me to pass over your home. And if you want to be saved, that's what you have to do. In Exodus 12, 13, it says this. It says, the blood shall be a sign for you. This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this moment, this time, this, this thing, this event 
called the Passover, has a profound impact on the nation of Israel. In fact, it becomes an annual celebration where the nation of Israel would gather together and celebrate this time of Passover when God delivered them from the hand of Egypt. But it's also a foreshadowing, a picture of the coming Christ and His death on the cross. Where He, being the perfect Lamb, would shed His blood for each and every one of us who believe and place our faith in Him and follow Him. So we have this foreshadowing, this happening, showing us this story is is all one story. It all ties in. And so by this point, we get to this nation of Israel, these rescued Israelites, arriving at Mount Sinai. So when they get to Mount Sinai, this is the same place where God met Moses in the burning bush. And at this moment, they enter into another covenant promise with God. This is called the Mosaic the Mosaic Covenant or the, the Moses Covenant. And this time, the covenant is conditional. It's conditional. And God says to Israel, there will be consequences if you break this promise. Because Israel in that moment promises to be faithful to God. He says, if you break that vow, there will be consequences. And what we see in this Mosaic Covenant is God calling Israel to be different, to be holy, to be set apart, to be known by the way they honor and worship God alone, how they love Him, how they obey Him. It's a simple concept. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy to be holy. It's not easy to live set apart. And God gives Israel instructions, which we call the law. And God tells them to build a tabernacle, which becomes the central place of worship where God will once again dwell with his people. And the Ten Commandments really are the heart of God's instruction for holiness. The Ten Commandments are the heart of God's law. And they're not not designed to be a whole bunch of religious rules. That's not the purpose of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments weren't given to be rules for the sake of rules. God gave them as rules to form right relationships. As you read through the Ten Commandments, you see that they're all built and designed about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. In fact, let's just read through them real quick. In Exodus 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. This is all talking about our relationship with God. You shall not worship anything before me, nor shall you make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The next commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And he says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on that day you shall not do any work, you, your sons, your daughters, your male servants, or your female servants, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. All those commandments deal with our relationship with God. Then he switches to our relationship with one another. Honor your father and your mother, that the, your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And in that moment, we have the Ten Commandments. And really, as we see these, these commandments are really calling you and I to live a different kind of life. It's calling God's people to live a life that is in right relationship with God and right relationship with others. It is calling us to a life that puts God first, that worships God only, that lives a life of goodness and honesty in everything we do, a life where we're faithful in our marriages, where we're content with our possessions, where we honor our parents and respect and love one another. That's the simplicity of the Ten Commandments. Why? Because God's people are called to be holy, morally and spiritually. And that's what we see outlined in the Ten Commandments. But here's the problem. Almost immediately, Israel betrays the covenant. As Moses is on Mount Sinai, he's delivered the Ten Commandments, and he's told them how to live, and then goes to Mount Sinai to have God write out the Ten Commandments on stone. What do the Israelites do? They form a golden calf and worship it. Unbelievable, right? And immediately, we begin to ask the question, what is God going to do with his people? What will happen to Israel? Will he wipe them out like he's done in the past in, in Genesis 6 with the flood? No. You see, God in his grace remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise. And God remembers what he promised Abraham. It is through your descendants that I will make you a great nation, give you a great land, and you will be a blessing to all people. So even though God's people have denied him, have rejected him, and broken their covenant with him, God does not reject his people. God keeps his promises. But the reality is there will be consequences. He's already told them that if you break your vows, there will be consequences. And because... Israel would not stand out and be holy morally and spiritually. They're going to need to stand out in another way. And what happens after the golden calf incident is we see Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and it's filled with all of these laws, all of these meticulous laws, all these laws that we read and we're like, why? Why is God talking about what we eat and what, what we wear? What do all these laws, these meticulous, odd, strange laws have to do with living morally and spiritually? It's almost as if this loving Heavenly Father that has continued to keep His promise almost morphs into this legalistic taskmaster. Maybe some of you have read the Old Testament and you think, man, God is such a, such a taskmaster. 
God is so legalistic, but that's not what's happening at all. And we're going to explain that in just a few moments. But, but some of these sections of Scripture, what we see is that God, in these laws, says that we're not to eat bacon or, or pork tenderloin. Like, why? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why? bacon is so delicious, why wouldn't he let his people eat bacon? But God, in these laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, says no bacon, no pork. That barbecue you're longing for after church today? Uh -uh. <laughs> but here's the question. What does that have to do with living holy, morally, and spiritually? You know what the answer is? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Let me explain. When it comes to the Old Testament law, we have to understand what we're talking about and be clear on what we mean when we say Old Testament law. You see, there's three divisions of the Old Testament law. There's the moral law. There's the civil law. And then there's the ceremonial law. The moral law is the Ten Commandments. The civil or legislative law is those governing laws that God put in place for the nation of Israel while they dwelt in the promised land that he had given them. And then there's the ceremonial law, which deals with all the worship rituals and all of the, the, um, the food laws, the clothing laws, all those different things. So you have those three different types of laws. But here's, what, here's where it gets interesting. And I think this is the part that we often miss when we study Scripture. Here's what's interesting. God gives the Ten Commandments before the golden calf incident. And he gives the judicial and the ceremonial law after the golden calf incident. You ever thought about that? It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? When you think about what God's ultimate desire for Israel was, that they would be morally and spiritually holy. That they would live in right relationship with God and right relationship with others, and none of those other laws would be necessary if they would just do that. If they would just stand out because of their love for God and their love for others, there would be no need for any other law. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In fact, Jesus referenced this law when the Pharisees came to him and said, Hey, Jesus, what is the greatest law? Out of all the laws, 613 plus laws in the Old Testament, what is the greatest? He says, there's one, and it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he goes, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love others. That's the simplicity that God wanted his people to live by. Love God. Love others. And yet we ruined it. And we continue to ruin it, don't we? They ruined it with the golden calf, and we continue to ruin it with our own sin. And because... God's people failed to live out that simple rule of loving God and loving others, of being holy in how they live because they refused to do that, because they failed to do that, God graciously chose another way to preserve his people. You see, church, if they weren't going to live different from other nations morally and spiritually, then they would have to be set apart ritually and ceremonially. 
And that's where we get all those laws that we tend to skip in the Old Testament. All those laws of Leviticus. When you read Leviticus, you have to understand that Leviticus was, was written one year in the, in the year following the golden calf incident. So after they sinned with, with, with worshiping the golden calf, one year later, as, as that year progresses, God delivers to Moses Leviticus, which is then recited again in Deuteronomy. That all happens after the golden calf. So in effect, what happens is, these co- this covenant that God makes with his people moves from the simplicity of the Ten Commandments to be holy, to live in right relationship with God and right relationship with others, to love God, to love others. It moves from that simplicity to the complexity of all the rules and the sacrifices in Leviticus. And you know, Deuteronomy is just a re- reiteration of Leviticus. As, as the nation dies out and they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, they re go over the rules and the laws once more. So, now you may be asking. So I know, if you st- I know some of you have studied Scripture and you're like, all right, Eric, I'm, I don't know, I'm not so sure uh, if, I, if I grasp what you're talking about. Because you're like, I know that there are, there are sacrifices before the golden calf incident. And you're right, there are. But all those sacrifices are voluntary. Go and study it for yourself. I encourage you to study it for yourself. Before the golden calf, those sacrifices that people made were voluntary, not commanded. They were done as a way to give thanks and praise and worship to God. But after the golden calf, after they break the covenant they they had made with God, then God immediately demands and commands daily, weekly, annual, mandatory sacrifices. And here's what's amazing. The sacrifices instituted in Leviticus, all those ritual laws, all those ceremonial laws, were symbolic. what they do is they symbolically bear the punishment that Israel deserved. Get this, church. What, what we're seeing, what we see here, is that it's as if God, in His grace, in His mercy, in His love for His people, It's almost as if God delays the curse of breaking the covenant. And he gives a means for dealing with their sin. In this way, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the Bible has put in place a system that can deal with the people's sin, that can deal with his people's breaking of their covenant until someone can come along and fulfill all of the promises that Israel had made. Until someone could come along and live out the heart of the covenants. Until someone could come along and be morally set apart, ritually set apart, and ceremonially set apart. If you know the story, and we're going to see it in a few weeks. I've already given you the the end of the story anyway last week. But we know that that person is Jesus. Jesus came and lived a perfect, holy life. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. He fulfilled the law of the Ten Commandments perfectly. And through his death on the cross, 
his sacrifice for our sin once and for all, Hebrews tells us, one, one sacrifice to cover all sin, Jesus also fulfilled the ritual and the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament as well. Isn't that incredible? We should be pretty excited about that. It's amazing. Which then, here, here's, what's, here's what's amazing. Jesus takes all those, those laws of Leviticus and he bore the covenant curse for us on the cross in order to purchase our redemption. In order for you and I to have an opportunity to be saved. In order for Israel to be a blessing to all nations. Now understanding this and grasping this makes other parts of God's story make more sense. Let me explain. Listen to what David said in Psalm 51. He says, this, he's talking to God. And he says, for God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. That seems odd, doesn't it? In light of Leviticus, why would David say God doesn't delight in sacrifice? And then he goes on to say, you would not be pleased with burnt offering. Really, God laid out in Leviticus sacrifices and burnt offerings that were designed to please God. So why would David say that? He says this. Because the sacrifices of God, what God ultimately desired for his people, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise those things. Think about that. David, in his prayer to God, says, God, listen, if I could offer sacrifices to you, I would. That's not your desire. Your desire is for my heart. Your desire is that I have a heart that longs for you, a heart that worships you. A heart that loves you. A heart that is in right relationship with God, that loves God and loves others. That's God's ultimate desire. You see it again in Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is looking back to these days. These days of when God delivered the people out of Egypt. And here's what he says. For in that day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So this is exactly what we're talking about. Jeremiah says this. About God speaking. He says, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why does Jeremiah say that? Because God's desire for them when he brought them out of the land was to live holy, morally, and spiritually. But because they failed to do so, then God added all the Levitical laws. But then Jeremiah goes on to say, but this command I give you. And this was the command that God desired for his people. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in my way that I commanded you, that it may be well with you. Are you seeing how this all fits together, church? How God, ultimate desire for us is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourself. Which then explains what Paul said in Galatians. For those of you who are with us, we, we finished this series in Galatians in the fall. And here's what Paul said in Galatians 3. He says, why then the law? If God's desire was for us to live morally and spiritually holy, to fulfill, live out the Ten Commandments, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, if that was God's ultimate purpose, why then the rest of the law, Paul asked? And here's what he says. It was added because of transgression." What transgression? 
worshiping the golden calf. Failing to live morally and spiritually holy. So God in His grace chooses another way to set His people apart. But then Paul goes on to say, until, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Who is that offspring? Jesus. What is that promise? Genesis 3.15, where God promises to Eve, out of your offspring I will bring one who will crush sin, crush Satan, and, and conquer death. Church, I hope that you're seeing how God's big story all fits together. How God in His mercy and in His grace continues to offer us, in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, in spite of our rebellion against Him, He continues to offer us mercy. He continues to extend to us grace. Church, that's all we have time for today. And that just covers the Torah. That's just the first five books of the Old Testament. But I do pray that you're beginning to see how God's story is one story. From Genesis to Revelation, it is telling one story. And throughout this biblical story, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Where the Old Testament is promises made, the New Testament is promises kept, and they're all centering around Jesus Christ, the promised one, from Genesis 3. The one through whom all the earth will be blessed. From Genesis 12. And that person is Jesus. The only one that could live a perfectly holy sinless life. The only one that could fulfill all the moral law. All the civil law. And all the ceremonial law. See God's desire God's desire for us is not that we go and leave, live out some legalistic religious rules. God's desire for us is that we would love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we would live holy, set-apart lives. That we would love God, we would honor God, we would worship God alone, that we would follow Him with all with all of our might, everything within us that we would follow after Him. That we would pursue Him and love Him and walk with Him. That's His desire. And as we do that, that begins to transform the relationships we have with one another. Because until we begin to love God, we'll never be able to truly love one another. But that is God's ultimate desire. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this story that you've given us. This story of your covenant promises where, God, you always keep your promises. There's not one promise, God, that you've given that you haven't kept, that you will not keep. And so, Father, we pray right now that you would ignite in our hearts this burning desire to love you to worship you, to honor you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, God, everything within us would, would long for your presence, would long for your power. 
Father, we pray that you would remove all the hindrances in our lives that keep us from you. Because just like the people of Israel, God, we sin, we fall short, we rebel against you, we sin against you, God. We beg for your mercy. And we know that you provided a way for our salvation. And that way is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Father, I pray for anyone in here and those watching online that have never placed their faith, their trust in you, Lord. I pray that today would be the day they would believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That they would place their trust and their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, God. That they would know who you are, what you've done on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin. And that they would trust you by following you and walking with you. Because God, that is your desire for us. And as we do that, Lord, we know that you're going to begin to transform our relationships. You're going to begin to transform our marriages. You're going to be to transform our work relationships. You're going to begin to transform our families as we submit to you, follow you, and walk with you. So, Father, we are once again reminded that you always keep your promises. And we hope in that and trust in that as we follow Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.